Okay, I think the streaming has gone live. So um, welcome to everyone who is following us on the webinar and through YouTube and also those who've, who are listening to us in the future um, to the recorded session. And welcome to this uh, debate, uh, Fearless Cities debate on the history of municipalism. Uh, my name is Kate Shebed and I'll be facilitating the debate. I'm on the executive board of, of Barcelona in Comun, and um, I'll introduce the participants in this session. Now we've got with us uh, Owen Hatherley, who is culture editor of Tribune magazine and author of Red Metropolis, which is a fantastic book about socialism and the government of London. Hi, Owen. Nice to have you with us. Um, and we've also got Pamela Radcliffe, who is chair of the Department of History at the University of California, San Diego. And she is just starting a research project on the municipalist tradition in Spain and partly inspired, she has told me, by Fearless Cities. So that's really exciting. Hi, Pamela. <laughs> and finally, we have Pierre Clavel, who is a professor emeritus at the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University and the author of another fantastic book, which is Activists in City Hall. And he's also got a project which is an online archive on progressive cities and neighborhood planning. So a great group of people to talk about the history of activists in City Hall, basically, which is the question that brings us here. And just to give a bit of background to why we're here, it's actually, I must confess, partly because of a slight obsession of mine over the last few years with the history of municipalism. I've lived in Barcelona for 13 years, but I was born in London in 1985. And uh, when Barcelona in Comun won the elections back in, in 2015, a number of people said to me, you've got to look at the experience of the Greater London Council in the 1980s as a source of inspiration and, and lessons for this new government that you're, you're starting in, in Barcelona. And uh, this was kind of a bombshell to me because I had never heard of the Greater London Council. And I had always known and been aware that I was born under Thatcher and was a kind of child of Thatcher. But I didn't know that I was also a child of Livingston, who was, you know, the mayor of London at that time, and that while Thatcher was dismantling the welfare state and privatizing housing and snatching milk and the rest of it, that there was this, uh, well, not just in London, in other cities too, but there was this council that was opposing those policies and also, you know, implementing kind of radical policies and anti-racist and feminist and community planning and building in participation and all sorts of other things. And I, I started on this journey to find out, out more about the GLC, but also to find out what other experiences might be out there that could help us, you know, embarking on this very um, intimidating and uh, difficult challenge of running a city with great ambitions and very little experience and to see whether we could learn from the recent past and the distant past and not re not repeat the same mistakes and maybe repeat some of the successes um and 
and so that's kind of the inspiration behind behind this session um we only have an hour or so so we won't be able to get super deep into it but i hope we can get a flavor of some of these different experiences that our speakers are going to talk about and just as a final note i think that it's probably no coincidence that i had heard about thatcher and i hadn't heard about the greater london council because the right is very good at investing in documenting and promoting its historical leaders and movements and policies um, and it's probably quite convenient for a lot of people that these examples and these experiences are on the left are forgotten about because if people know about them they might be tempted to repeat them and so part of the idea of this this session is also a kind of you know way of of building knowledge and ultimately power um, in in our movement so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, the Okay, so maybe the, the best way to start would be to do a, a quick round just to, so everyone can get a sense of who's in the room and what you are here to talk about. And so if we could go around quickly and just, if you could explain what you've been writing, researching about and why you think it matters today. <laughs> and um, yeah, maybe we could start with Pamela. Okay, um, thank you, Kate. And I, I do want to say just first that I'm really uh, feel you know privileged to be here. And as you said earlier, I was you know really partly inspired by reading about the Fearless Cities organization and realizing how much municipalism. This was a municipalist moment, right, in in global history. And um, and what struck me because I had just written um, a general survey book on the history of Spain in the 19th and 20th century. And what had struck me in writing that book is this sort of recurring thread of municipalist politics throughout that you know, 200 year period. And so what really what Fearless Cities and of course the emergence of Podemos and all of the sort of you know, um, similar parties and movements um, made me realize is that you know, this wasn't a new phenomenon coming out of nowhere, and nobody had really connected the dots before, right? Really going back to debates in the 1812 Constitution between different versions of liberals, some of whom were arguing for municipal autonomy, you know, as the site for citizen participation, and the conservative liberals arguing for, you know, municipalities as basically just, you know, kind of um, administrative organs of the state, right? So that debate already starts, you know, back there. So that's, you know, what I think I can contribute to this discussion is kind of, um, you know, this longer view of what I'm arguing is a municipalist tradition, even though, right, that the concept itself doesn't get um, created or, you know, identified or, or invented, right, until recently. Fantastic, thank you. And uh, since I've already introduced the, the GLC, maybe we could go to Owen now and he could tell us about his his book. <laughs> sure, so, um, so, so the book, Red Metropolis, was sort of, I mean, it didn't, it started out as a new left review piece about, about London for a series they had called Metropolitan Disorders, I think. Then it became something else, became something else as an essay in the book. 
And roughly speaking, it was about the, the various experiences of municipal socialism in London from the very moment of the, of the foundation of the London County Council, its first democratically elected governing body in 1889, to the eventual abolition of the larger Greater London Council in 1986. So in that period of you know, 97 years, you have mostly, you know, the city is run by the left, there are brief moments, sort of particularly the 20s, the 70s, when the right are in power, but by and large, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's run by the left. And you have these various kind of different kind of like, you know, kind of moments where the radical left is in control, moments where a more social democratic left is in control. Um, and then particularly for what I'm going to be talking about today, which is the period from 1981 to 1986, in which the kind of, let's say post-1986, oh, sorry, post-1968, New Left uh, basically took control of the London Labour Party and then control over the Greater London Council. Um, the book also has a fair bit on the kind of partial attempt to resurrect that in the form of the London Mayor, which was introduced in 2000 and was initially taken by the head of the Greater London Council in the, from 81 to 85, Ken Livingston. Um, and uh, I think generally very disappointing results of that, which I think they haven't been kind of universally terrible, but by and large, I think they've been very disappointing. And I think a lot of the purpose of that book was to work out why they had been so disappointing and whether or not the kind of current municipal left of London, which I think is quite um, small C conservative and technocratic, could really do with learning both about, I guess, the kind of radical social democracy of the 30s and the kind of new left social movementism of the 80s. Great. Uh, I want to hear all about it. Um, and finally, we have uh, Pierre, who's calling in from Ithaca, New York, and uh, I believe he's going to talk to us about Chicago in the 1980s. So could you give us a quick introduction to that government? Yeah, I, I, um, I you know, I had done a book on uh, progressive cities in the United States, uh, uh, smaller places. Uh, Hartford, Cleveland, Berkeley, Santa Monica, Burlington, Vermont. And I wanted to get it uh, into a bigger city, uh, especially where they had race issues uh, of a bigger uh, sort. And so Chicago was one of, the, uh, one of the options. And one of our former students at Cornell had become the economic development director there, uh, working for Harold Washington, who was the city's first black mayor. And um, then thinking about it later, uh, I put Chicago alongside Boston in a book about uh, later efforts. This is like 20, 30 years later. And um, <clears throat> I concluded that uh, Chicago was a, a sort of a, a paradigmatic example of stuff in the United States. I actually paired it to some extent with the Greater London uh, Council. I had uh, made contact with uh, another uh, British guy that I think, Owen, you probably know him, Simon Parker, who had done a lovely uh, dissertation on Bologna. And some of the ideas in Bologna had attracted uh, some of the people at the Greater London Council, which they tried to 
to play with. And I thought, uh, well, and I ended up getting the uh, Greater London Council economic plan on a Cornell Archives uh, website, which is not the one that I uh, listed, by the way, uh, to you, because it, it's got some curious navigation issues, which I, I never can find the exact right URL to tell people to find it. And I'm working on that. Um, so anyway, and then I, I produced out of this, just for today, a, a longer story about the creation of a uh, sort of a local industrial policy in uh, Chicago, which was, I thought, the key thing that they actually did substantively alongside uh, the racial fairness issue, which is the thing that uh, caused the greatest controversy in the city. So. Fantastic. Um, no, well, before we get into the, the actual policies, maybe I think it would be good to kind of get a feel for who these people are or were, um, or, or are there's probably some of them still around. Um, but in, in Barcelona, for example, we're, we're a mix of um, people who come from, from social movements, particularly the housing movement, uh, in a kind of coalition with uh, smaller left-wing green parties, and also you know, some people who've not been so active in, in politics or movements before. And what happened in, in Barcelona is that there was a kind of big wave of social movements after the 2008 crisis. And, and these social movements had a lot of success from outside the institutions, but then they kind of realized that there was a kind of a glass ceiling, right? And this the strategy was, well, we've got a lot of power, we've got a lot of momentum, let's kind of make that jump to the institutions to try and do things that we can't get done from, from outside. So it would be good to know, um, maybe starting with Owen, who were these people who were in the GLC? Were they, you know, just your normal labor politicians? Were they activists? Were they a mix? Uh, like what, what were they kind of, where were they coming from and what, would, what, what, what were they trying to achieve? They, they were very much a mix, um, which I think comes from the fact that, put bluntly, that we have proportional representation, which makes any challenge from outside of the Labour Party extraordinarily difficult to do. Um, so I would say there's kind of like, the, the, the main group is people that joined Labour Party in the 1970s or in the late 1960s, which is quite a strange thing to do. You know, the, the, the kind of new left circles were generally not very attracted by the Labour Party. Um, but some of them had been brought into it, particularly in the 1970s, by figures like Tony Benn. Um, and, you know, there'd been a sort of quite large Trotskyist movement in there. And basically, they'd kind of um, managed to push parts of the party quite far left by the 1974 general election. And after that, really, one of the really significant things is that whenever Labour were in government, they tended to lose very heavily in local elections. And there was one election in particular, I think in 1969, in which they were just cleared out. And so young activists generally, you know, from sort of anti-Vietnam war movements, from, um, you know, from often from kind of sectarian backgrounds, a lot of the people involved have been in the international Marxist group. Um, although I think they've usually left it because it was you know, quite strange. Some have been in the, in the Workers' Revolutionary Party. 
um, they just kind of went in there and took all of those empty spaces. Um, and that meant that there was this quite large kind of weight of numbers. Um, and they'd taken over various kind of constituency parties um, in the second half of the 70s to the point where they kind of had enough weight to take over the whole city. And one of the ways, I mean, they were very, very ruthless in doing that, something actually, which I think we can probably, yeah, probably worth talking about. They were, although they were very kind of movementist in so far as they had a lot more commitment than a lot of the people in, in the kind of old sort of trade union left, had a lot more commitment to, uh, to gender equality, to uh, racial justice issues, et cetera, et cetera. They were a lot more kind of hard line on that stuff. Um, they were also an extremely drilled and ruthless organization using the kind of centralized structure of the Labour Party against its right, basically. Um, I'd say if there was any big difference actually between that era of left ascendancy in Labour and the one of the last five, well, the one of 2015 to 2019, it's that. It's the fact that these people were very much out to win power and would stab people in the back if they needed to. Um, the other thing was, um, I think that, you know, that, that there's a kind of, I think what they were, where they came from, which is 1968, but then there's a context that they came into, which I think is slightly different, which I think is a, is a sort of post-1977 kind of anti-fascist movement. So a lot of the kind of, um, you know, the kind of people that, that got themselves into power in one point or another were sort of maybe about 10 years older 20 years older than the people they were trying to kind of bring in, who had come up through a kind of particular political sequence that goes from the protest against the National Front, um, the kind of neo-fascist party, which was at one point, you know, on the cards to be the third largest party in Britain and then wasn't, largely due to these mobilizations. And the things that came out of that, such as the Rock Against Racism, the Anti-Nazi League, that these were the social movements that were happening at the time. That's what was actually happening. Um, so it was these older people were sort of trying to tap into that and trying to bring that into government. I think that's that's the crucial point. Fantastic. And Pierre, your book is called Activists in City Hall, but Washington himself wasn't exactly, an, he, he was quite, a, he came from the traditional party politics, didn't he? What was what was going on there? Well, he, got drafted, he got drafted to run for mayor by the Black Power group. Guy named Lou Palmer, a radio uh, personality, and that was maybe the largest faction that uh, was behind uh, uh, Harold. And Harold uh, was going to take their uh, their numbers, uh, but he kept them at arm's length because he knew he also needed uh, some of the. Well, there was another group that was called the the Lakefront Lakefront Liberals. Uh, in Chicago, were a sort of a familiar type of uh, participant in, in American politics, probably everywhere. Uh, and uh, there was also, uh, I mean, the group that I connected with uh, were the ex-anti-war uh, SDS uh, student left uh, from the 1960s, who 10 years later had gotten older uh, and we're going to work. And they worked in community organizations. There was a very strong uh, history of uh, neighborhood organizations in uh, Chicago. And so this produced a lot of people. There was a group of 
one group of those was called CANDO, Chicago Association of Neighborhood Development Officials or something like that. Uh, there was a later one called the Rehab Network. Uh, and there was a, a third one called uh, CWED, uh, Chicago Workshop on Economic Development, out of which developed um, city policy. The, one of the uh, facilitator of a major meeting they had, they were trying to get a, uh, not an enterprise zone, what was the original name? It came from England, Peter Hall, um, something like that uh, zone idea, which is from the Reagan administration. They were going to, uh, the state was going to try to do it, and they thought they'd come up with a community or oriented version of that. I never got that on the state ballot, but they did get it into the Washington campaign. That was the idea that uh, development ought to be oriented toward um, smaller organizations and toward neighborhoods, not toward the central business district and uh, big, uh, big firms. Uh, Rob Meir, then a professor at uh, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, planning department, who'd been working with a lot of these organizations. He was actually out there doing uh, classes with the organizations themselves. This is a big change in how to do, do instruction, right? Um, but in doing that, he had many, many of his alumni out in these organizations. Um, they were at this meeting where they were trying to come up with a policy for economic development that would be different from the usual policy of economic, the top-down version of economic policy. Um, and he came up with an idea from the uh, floor, he said, which he called a generative metaphor. He said, look, what we're about here is jobs, not real estate. Jobs, not real estate became the battle cry for this whole organization. It got repeated in a, a policy statement that this organization, CWED, I called it, uh, had. It then got repeated in the Washington Papers, which was a campaign document, which he ran on. It then got repeated in Chicago Works Together, which was an economic plan for the city of Chicago. It then got repeated in Chicago Works Together too. It got reinforced by a study of steel factories that they contracted with an economist named Ann Markison to write a 500 page document that more or less established that manufacturing did have a future in the United States and in steel, which they argued unsuccessfully uh, in the face of opposition from the city and from the nation, which was arguing that manufacturing was a thing of the past and we were all gonna now live on essentially real estate. Um, that was the idea that developed in Chicago. So I'm saying I'm saying there were these three different groups here. The groups that that I was connecting with were the activists in the organizations. I mentioned the so-called lakefront liberals, and I mentioned in the background, but the larger population was the Black Power group, which mobilized the African-Americans uh, in the city. And there were many, many other marginalized groups that had never been uh, uh, 
represented in the city government. The city had historically been in the hands of the fabled uh, machine, the daily uh, machine. Uh, <clears throat> Richard J. Daly was the guy. And he had died in the 70s, and they'd had a bunch of people running it afterwards. So they were trying Great. to do that. Thank you. We've got a bit of background noise from, from your mic. I'm not sure where it's coming from, but um, we, we can hear you pretty well. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's just your seat moving or something like that. Yeah, um, um, Pamela, I mean, feel free to um, contribute whatever you'd like, but it might, it might be interesting to know you know, in, in the broad sweep of, of Spanish municipalism, if you think there are any kind of defining characteristics that kind of mm, are found throughout history or, well, what, whatever you'd like to kind of contribute great. to this. Right. Yeah, no, it's great. Obviously, I have a different answer because I'm not talking about a specific, you know, case. But I mean, the first thing I would say is that you know, my argument is essentially that municipalism is a sort of, you know, counter culture, counter, um, you know, hegemonic discourse and set of movements, right, across those 200 years. It's usually on, you know, the outside of the power structure, right? Um, so it's either, you know, political parties that are, you know, kind of in the, the minority or it's social movements, right, some combination of them. But the dominant parties throughout those two centuries are always centralizing status parties. And that includes the, you know, the main liberal parties of the 19th century, but it also includes, you know, parties of the 20th century, like the Socialist Party, which is also a statist, you know, has been an essentially status top-down party, right? Um, you know, since the, the transition. And of course, you know, obviously. Um, you know, even in the Second Republic, most of the Republican parties were statist parties, you know, that is, they believed that the state, you know, was the central generator of progress and, you know, political initiative, right? So all of the movements that I'm looking at are, you know, the losers in the dustbin of history generally, but um, they do emerge at moments of sort of liminality, right? Revolutionary moments. Um, so you know, during the various kinds of liberal revolutions in the early 19th century, right, you've, you've got, just for an example, right, the, the, the liberal revolution from 1854 to 56, right, this is a two-year period when progressive liberals come in and they, you know, they basically transform the municipality, the municipal government into something that is more autonomous and has more kind of local participation, right? And they they are able to kind of create that for this short period of time. Um, the same thing happens during the um, the sexenio, the the that ends with a republic in the late 1860s, early 1870s, um, that culminates with these cantonal revolts, which are basically local, um, you know, local independent um, federations. And the theory was that they would all form this kind of horizontal, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of federation of local municipalities. Um, and again, you know, that was this moment, and then it gets crushed again. And then another moment, for example, is during the Civil War uh, in the 1930s, where anarchist communities and anarchism had a municipalist streak to it as well, you know, were able to 
form, you know, um, essentially kind of municipalist structures. One of the cities I studied was Gijon, which is in Asturias. And, you know, during the Civil War, they had a city council that had an anarchist mayor and, uh, you know, other sort of left-wing anarchists and Republicans. Um, and their, their city project was basically this kind of municipalist project to, um, you know, to municipalize services and property. And it was just, it was much more municipalist than it was class-based, for example, right? Which is what we normally think about when we think about revolutionary projects in the Civil War. So those are sort of examples, right, of how they emerge in these liminal revolutionary moments and have these kind of brief opportunities. But just then to kind of talk about the different types of movements, right? In the early 19th century, we had left-wing liberals uh, for whom municipal autonomy was one of their key demands in contrast to the conservative liberals. Then in the mid to late 19th century, we have federal Republicans. And those are, you know, obviously they believe in republic as opposed to monarchy, but their basic core belief was decentralization of power and this sort of horizontal, you know, um, network of municipal autonomous municipal governments. And then by the late 19th century, those federal Republicans are more or less defeated and anarchism becomes the main standard bearer of municipalism. Even though we think of anarchism as being anti-political, um, they had this concept called el municipio libre, you know, the free municipality is sort of the core or the, the, the path to, you know, a future without any government. And then moving into the 20th century, um, uh, uh, just to, to sort of finish up um, the neighborhood association movements in the 1960s and 70s, they also had a sort of municipalist set of demands, right? That they should be able to, um, you know, participate in local government, that they there should be a sort of active citizen element and not just representative governments and municipalities. Um, so those were social movements, right, that were you know, trying to demand entrance. So you can see there's a combination, right, of political parties that are minority, have a minority status, and social movements that are trying to advocate, you know, um, and I would say in the current moment, right, you also have that combination, as you described, Kate, you know, in, in Barcelona, that combination of um, new political movements, but also, you know, social movements um, that are pushing from the outside. Fantastic. That actually um, leads me to another question, which is, I get the sense, uh, as, as you've described, that the, the municipalist tradition in Spain has a quite strong ideological component. And what I'm wondering is whether the experiences in the US and the UK in the 80s were, had a kind of an ideological commitment to, to, to local self-government, or whether it was more like a a strategic kind of well we've lost the national government this is where you know this is where we're forced to, this is the only place where we can really do anything and whether it was more just a kind of um out of necessity that they were working at local level or or maybe one bred the other i don't know what do you have any inputs on that either of you about sure, the kind sure. of ideological nature um it sounds kind of pat, but it was very much both, I think, in the case of the GLC. Um, there was an element 
And this is probably one of the things that really kind of did for them in the end. There was an element that they were kind of acting as if they were a sort of shadow government. Um, and that was very deliberate, you know, and that was partly um, sort of necessitated by the fact that that's that, that it almost sort of was at that point, um, you know, the, the county hall, the kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of London Parliament, so to speak, was directly opposite the Houses of Parliament. And so it, you know, invited this enormous kind of possibility for political theatre, um, which they very much embraced by kind of having the unemployment figures at the top of County Hall um, displayed for Parliament to see at all times. Um, but also, you know, Labour had obviously lost the 1979 election, um, but probably the GLC really came into its own and became very popular only after the 1983 election, where they didn't, Labour didn't just lose, they were humiliated, there was, they got a kicking. Um, so there was a sense of some trying things out that you would like to do in national government, using the fact that you did have this machinery to do it with. Um, and that's the thing that actually they picked up from how Labour governed County Hall in the 1930s. Um, again, after a very, very heavy defeat um, in 1931. Um, you know, it was, it was used at that point, I suppose, as a test bed of doing a sort of like sensible socialism. You know, we're going to show that we can run the city um, smoothly. You know, that if we do all of these things, we bring in these reforms, the world won't collapse. It won't be revolutionary. Um, whereas I think the kind of 1980 GLC were very much doing something the same. They were kind of trying to demonstrate something to people, but they were doing it in a much more kind of, um, there's much more of an element of brinkmanship, of brinksmanship and of conf deliberate confrontation with the government. But just to finish that point, they, they, the, the 80s GLC were deeply committed to a kind of relative level of localism. Um, certainly I wouldn't say they were anarchists or there were people on the fringe of it who, who were kind of anarchist adjacent, let's say. Um, but they were um, quite critical, and in some cases I think too critical, of the kind of legacy of the laborist welfare state and the legacy of the kind of things that labor had been doing in London from the 30s on and favoured much more doing things on a very kind of very, very small scale local level of cooperatives and, and small activist groups and so forth, rather than kind of large local authorities, you know, building 100,000 houses or whatever. Would you like to speak to that, Pierre, or, or would you like to get straight into to the politics of, of Chicago? Up to you. Well, the, the only thing I thought about was a um, nearby city named Binghamton, near me in Ithaca. There's a woman named Mary Clark who ran a local organization in uh, Binghamton, always trying to do anti-poverty work and stuff like that. And uh, she then became part of a, a new uh, effort to take uh, control of City Hall back uh, in about 2005, something like that, long time later. Uh, I went down and talked to her and I said, what made you do this? What made you get involved in city government? It's a real pain. And she said, it was just an awful pain to try to get anything done with this stupid Republican mayors that we'd had one after another, you know, very small scale government, uh, very dull um, and always saying no to doing anything. So I said, what the hell? Let's just try to take it over. And they did. And so for eight years, they had a pretty good mayor, a couple of good people in the city planning department, and they did what they could. And uh, then they were done. 
but I don't have too much. Uh, I don't think that most of the progressive cities in the United States uh, were doing it uh, with the national national issues in mind. I think they were uh, locally motivated mostly. Got it. Parallels from the outside, but they weren't articulating this very much. Yeah, well, like like Owen says, if you've got uh, your city hall right opposite the parliament, it kind of um, it, it it lends lends to some confrontation. Um, there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess like mm, what would be good to know is um, you know what what can we learn what can we learn from these experiences and um, and starting maybe with with the successes, you know, what what were the kind of things that these uh, governments or movements managed managed to achieve um, in their their time in in power, however however brief or fleeting. Um, who who would like to to start us off? Okay, I'm, I'm happy to I suppose. Um, so in terms of what they managed to achieve, I guess. And this isn't supposed to be totally a criticism. Much of what they managed to achieve was a matter of theatrics and propaganda. And that's a positive thing, because it was a thing that meant that they tapped into the movements that are happening in the late 70s, which is exactly what they wanted to do. Um, you know, they came to power very much on the heels of the Brixton riots of 1981, and very much, you know, in a context where, um, you know, sort of racialized policing and so forth. Um, you know, were a very, very big issue in London. And they were very committed to what Paul, Paul Gilroy called slightly sneeringly um, municipal anti-racism and to bringing the energies of rock against racism and so forth and the kind of, you know, the punk scene and the two-tone scene and the reggae scene and the hip-hop scene into, you know, into the kind of local socialist movement. And they did that with some success and they did that largely through um, the festivals that they had at County Hall, through the festivals they had in parks, and, you know, which again kind of very much drew on the festivals that Rock Against Racism had had. And it became a kind of demonstration of a particular kind of culture, again to quote Paul Gilroy, this kind of idea of convivial culture, which is very much a thing that kind of survived in London. I think it's its, it's most kind of genuine legacy is to, is to kind of um, quite sort of relaxed anti-racism and anti-fascism of lots of London. Now that's a, that, that's a thing that the GLC kind of built in at the, at, 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 you know, at the, at the kind of governmental level. And it was also a thing that had enormous influence on the hiring policies. If you just go into the statistics on, you know, who was and who wasn't working for local government, um, you know, it went from an overwhelmingly white preserve to not, to, to very much the, you know, to very much reflecting the actual demographics of London within about five years, which is a, a quite major achievement. Um, so, on, and, 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 you know, they, they did this by being very, very public, you know, by, um, you know, having large poster campaigns, by having these festivals, by having records, they released a record um, by a reggae singer called Ranking Anne, called Kill the Police Bill, about a particular police bill. Um, and we currently have in the UK a particularly monstrous policing bill, which has just gone through. And the possibility of the mayor of London, you know, having putting out funding a record called "Kill the Police" policing bill is just so hard to imagine that it's quite depressing. But you know, but I suspect this that is the one of the threads which he does represent is that municipal anti-racism, which I think he is quite committed to, although he has much less uh, 
talent for propaganda, to put it to put it politely. Um, so I think that really is the big success. Um, the other kind of plank, which is quite similar to the stuff that, that Pierre's been talking about, about sort of um, trying to kind of stop the industrial decline of London, and people often forget that London by the late 70s was a substantially industrial city, particularly outer London was very, very heavily industrial. And it lost those jobs between the mid 70s and the end of the 80s. Um, and they were very, very keen to keep those jobs in London and had a quite elaborate pro program kind of based on the, the so-called Lucas plan, which is a whole other story, um, to kind of introduce cooperatives and introduce kind of building for useful purposes and so on and so forth, which was very ambitious. And the actual results of it, because it happened, it was so brief, it's quite hard to kind of really work out what it really what, what its legacy really was. I think its main legacy there was the economic policies of John McDonnell when he was shadow chancellor, which were very much based on that. And John McDonnell was the effective chancellor of the GLC between 81 and 86. So he was very much kind of carrying on from where he'd left off. I'm so glad you brought up the, um, the human resources question because uh, the GLC in the 80s was way ahead of where Barcelona is today, where the, public um, workers uh, are basically all native born white uh, Spanish and Catalan people. So I think we probably could learn a lot from that. And also I'm just imagining now, we're talking about the, um, the, the kind of propaganda cultural battle. And I completely agree that it's more, it's important to win those kind of values based um political battles um and it's something that is also a big challenge for us at the moment and i'm imagining you were talking about a a, um, a counter of unemployment right on the on the mm -hmm. wall of, of city hall and in barcelona actually the city hall is opposite the the catalan government across the same square not across a river in this case it's across the square and i'm imagining you know hung from the front of city hall number of public housing built by city hall in barcelona 3614 number of public housing built in barcelona by the catalan government 31 because <laughs> <laughs> these are the kind of um the, the kind of things that we need like that we want people to know and it's very difficult to have to to get the information out there and and using the front of your your city hall might be might be a good strategy for us. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think there's. I, I agree. They were amazing communicators. If if nothing else, um, maybe we could go to back to Chicago. Oh, you're sorry. I, I've uh, let me unmute unmute you. Oh, sorry. I, I muted you because there was a bit of background noise, and now I can't unmute you. Um, well, let's go to Pamela while we sort this out. Okay, so um, so again, I'm going to sort of talk about uh, answer your questions through through the long sweep of things. I think, you know, over the long haul, I think what these movements have done successfully is to keep as part of the debate, right, about politics and where politics happens. Um, you know, most. Um, most effectively, it's kept that tension unresolved between the local, the regional, and the national governments. 
you know, rather than the sort of standard narrative of political monetization is about the scaling up of political decisions, right? That, you know, um, in the pre-modern period, right, politics was more local. And then, you know, when we get to sort of the modern state building, the state, you know, is where everything important happens. And the municipalist movements uh, always challenge that by, by arguing that, you know, it's actually more of a of a dynamic. So they keep that conversation open, right, about where politics, what kind of politics should be done, right, at what level. And, you know, in doing that, they also always, you know, um, uh, what's the best way of putting it, you know, they, they, they kind of bring government to the people, right, you know, ordinary citizens understand what governments do, right, with that connection to this most local um, form of government. So um, I think it helps people see the connections between government and daily life, right, um, in ways that they don't see with the national government. Um, and then on a more sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, cultural level, I would pick up on what Owen said, that one of the, one of the um, I think, defining features of municipalism is the focus on community and community building. And you talked about conviviality as a sort of principle. I think that's exactly what I would say about all of these movements that they focus on the community rather than the individual, right? It's how individuals come together, right? And that, so there's always a kind of community building, um, you know, element to municipalist movements and discourses. Um, and then finally, on sort of more practical levels, I think, uh, again, these municipalist movements have been successful, even if briefly, in disrupting local oligarchies, right? Because, you know, local power doesn't mean, you know, uh, democratic power necessarily, right? There's a lot of oligarchical power at the local level. So that's often, you know, disrupted um, with these participatory movements. And then, of course, finally, they could also achieve material changes, right? Um, not as extensive as the case studies, you know, that Owen and Pierre are talking about, because, you know, again, they're focused on, um, you know, specific cases where these governments are in power for uh, a length of time. But, you know, the neighborhood associations in Spain of the 1960s and 70s um, achieved, you know, they, they pressured the local governments to build sewers and schools and, um, and all of the polideportivo, oh, poly you know, centers that exist today are, most of them are as a result of, you know, pressure from neighborhood associations um, to do that. Um, and in the 19th century, it was more about um, the cities and the municipalities control over city land and, you know, the structure of who gets taxed and right, all of the, the sort of things that cities controlled, you know, the municipalist movements would have an impact, you know, on on those kinds of things, and that's of course why municipalism really seemed um, relevant, right, and continues to seem relevant to people's lives because they, you know, even today, you know, even today, so much of our daily lives is shaped by, you know, what the city, you know, what the city decides or what 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 is decided at the municipal level. So. It remains really relevant, you know, and the municipalist movements help continually remind us of that, that it's not just a, you know, a kind of um, 
you know, a lesser and less important level of government, even though, you know, it feels, you know, and, and I think, and I think I would say, you know, just sort of bringing in the US experience today, I think a lot of progressive activists are finally realizing that in the US, you know, a, a lot more are sort of starting in local government now, you know, getting elected to city councils and starting from that level. Fantastic. Well, obviously, I think um, land and housing are a huge theme uh, in a lot of these um, experiences. And Pierre was telling us that the slogan in Chicago was jobs, not real estate, right? Because there was, uh, well, not just housing, but but real estate speculation um, running rampant in, in the city center, I believe. And maybe you could tell us more about the jobs part of that and what what they were doing to try and save jobs and create jobs. They had, well, they had different ways that they were trying to do that. Um, one was that I told you that the, that this uh, commissioner, Robert Meir, uh, had uh, already made ties with a whole bunch of these uh, organizations. Uh, because he'd been teaching them. He'd had them in classes. He'd been doing classes in their, uh, in their backyards, uh, doing things for them and vice versa. Um, when he became commissioner of economic development, uh, he found a way to redirect the uh, federal block grant money, community development block grants, uh, which were substantial in the early 80s. Uh, and uh, he redirected a bunch of them to a half a dozen of these agencies that seemed to be particularly uh, capable of interacting with businesses, particularly with manufacturing businesses and being helpful to the, these, these ones uh, and helping them to agitate City Hall for infrastructure improvements and uh, things, roads and bridges and stuff like that, that they needed to be able to run their their uh, factories. He called them the. He called this a local initiative, uh, local industrial retention initiative. Leary, L-I-R-I. So the, these Leary organizations were leading the way for Chicago, as far as working with the small and medium-sized factories that they were attempting to keep from leaving town. They were trying to save those jobs, so that, and that was because. Other people realized they needed people with some money to be able to pay for the housing. So they were they were thinking sort of globally about um, stuff like this. Another thing that they did was they created something called the Planned Manufacturing District. This was a woman I mentioned earlier, uh, Donna Descharm, who got the idea by going to MIT and working with a professor named Ben Harrison. Uh, cooked up the idea of a new, a new type of zoning where you would stop, uh, you would restrict uh, uh, an area or a building from uh, not being allowed to be turned into residential uses. In other words, you could protect the manufacturing use instead of the other way around. And um, <clears throat> this finally got adopted by Harold Washington the week before he died in office. He died suddenly of a heart attack after four and a half years in office. Um, 
And so she, after beating her head against the wall to get these people to see the value of this and finally winning it in City Hall, the guy dies. So then she has to go with the, uh, new, the new mayor. There was an interim mayor named Sawyer who was in there for 18 months. And uh, she finally wins it with Sawyer and Sawyer starts the first planned manufacturing district in uh, 1988, the year after Washington died. Then he gets defeated in the uh, election that was for the permanent mayor's uh, office to be the real, the real mayor. And he was defeated by uh, the son of the old machine mayor, whose name is Richard M. Daly. And uh, Daly ran on the idea that uh, things like planned manufacturing districts were the worst idea he'd ever heard of, that we've got to stick with the basic work down in the, the main uh, business district and stuff like that, wiping out all the interests of all this uh, coalition, which still existed. They were still out there. There were many different parts of the coal, including especially um, foundations. The MacArthur Foundation supported a very large uh, effort to uh, support these uh, these community organizations. Right after well, can I can I just ask you what these planned um, manufacturing districts? What what exactly were they? How did they work? Well, there were areas near. They were near the loop, near the business district of uh, Chicago. And um, they were very desirable locations for housing and for upscale retail and stuff like that. So, and then there were owners of the businesses who were getting older. And so there was a natural turnover that was gonna happen. Did the family, uh, sons and daughters want to keep the business going? Did they want to move it out to the suburbs or what? How do we keep them in the city? Well, there's a developer here who wants to just buy the thing or take it somehow and turn it into, uh, take out the machines and uh, turn it into luxury apartments, you know, condos. And that was the, the, the growth industry in Chicago. Donald Ducharme, who was uh, somewhat of a social work background and who was working in uh, actually a notorious, uh, I forget the name of it, uh, housing project uh, nearby one of these areas, uh, had all these young guys that she wanted to get uh, hired. What are you going to do for employment? Well, I'd like to go work in a factory, but uh, he's thinking he's going to close down, you know. So she says, well, we'll try to save the factory. And she comes up with this notion. She eventually sells it citywide as an idea. Daly turns around after six months in office, he turns around and he says, well, I'm gonna support the planned manufacturing district. And uh, he ends up putting in uh, uh, 12 uh, so-called PMDs. Well, that was another sort of a high profile effort to deal with this. Um, was not successful, you know. I mean, how the manufacturing was going down the drain in the United States in general, and also in Chicago. Chicago was one of the biggest manufacturing centers in the United States. They also were losing jobs. So they kept losing jobs. 
They saved some with the plan manufacturing district. They saved some with other types of attention, but they didn't overall win that one. Um, and they kept doubling down on it. They kept trying to do different things. They did something called uh, uh, the Chicago First, uh, or First Choice, I guess it was something like that. Uh, workforce development idea that finally didn't, didn't work for a long, long time. Daly uh, ended up making that one work uh, about 2006 before that happened. That's like 30 years later, 25 years later. So, um, so it's an ironic, see, it's ironic. What's ironic is that in Chicago, they had some good, good ideas that went against the grain, but in favor of the constituency that elected Harold Washington, poor people, black people, okay? Uh, so they had good ideas to do. Um, they put together a, uh, structure to support these ideas politically. The neighborhood organizations, the foundations supported them, MacArthur Foundation in particular, but also the Joyce Foundation and some others in Chicago. Um, there were about six or eight different factors like that that, that went into, into play. In other words, it wasn't just city planners with great ideas. <coughs> there were some people with pretty good ideas who actually were able to talk to the people out in the neighborhoods for the reasons that I said, like having taught them in school for a while, things like that. There were labor, uh, a sliver of the labor movement that uh, was in alliance with all this, not the most part of it, okay? So they had everything in place to oppose the so-called growth coalition. Meanwhile, the growth coalition is moving into real estate. See, they didn't care about manufacturing. Um, and so, you know, the head of U.S. Steel, a guy named Roderick, comes into town early in the Harold Washington administration, and they're thinking they had closed, I guess, U.S. Steel South Works in Chicago, laid off 10,000 workers. And he stands up and says, you know, we just changed the name of our company. We're not U.S. Steel any longer. We're U.S.X. Our business is not to make steel. It's to make money. So we're going into real estate and now it's a shopping center. Okay. So well you've so, you've taken us you've taken us very nicely into <laughs> into the part of uh of failures as well as uh as, as successes. Figure out what's a failure, you see. Well, that's true. That's see, true. They did a lot of things right and they failed. I think that so you can do everything right and still have global trends working against you, right? I guess is the well, they took, you see, they, they didn't know what the global trends were. You see, they, they, all they can see from their point of view is, well, maybe it's a, a trend, but maybe it's something we can turn around. See, what's our best bet? Well, we'll, we'll bet on turning it around. They bet, it, they bet wrong. And then later, they said, well, you know, if Harold just hadn't died, we could right. going. Well, I mean, I guess the thing, something that Pamela mentioned earlier is the idea that um, power, power isn't just, you know, being in government in City Hall, right? Power is something that is far more distributed, far beyond uh, democratic institutions. 
And that kind of brings me to another thing that we wanted to talk about, which was um, alliances, which I think we've already covered quite a lot about what kind of alliances these governments had, but also um, adversaries, right? Like what kind of pow powers were they up against? Who was trying to stop them? And, um, and how did they deal with those, that kind of opposition, whether it be political, economic, media? Um, Owen, would you like to sure on uh, that one? The the principle, well, I mean, the GLC in the 1980s, before it was abolished in 1986, faced opposition from practically everywhere. Um, it was obviously opposed by the Conservative Party to the point where they literally abolished the Great London Council, which Neil Aitchison once wrote would have caused a constitutional scandal in any other European country, which I think is true. Uh, London for them for 14 years became the only capital city of anything like its size in the world to have no government. Um, you know, it was um, run essentially as 33 different small towns um, for 14 years, um, which was a disaster. Um, and it's astonishing they got away with it. Um, and I think it shows that in many ways that's the kind of problem that, that, that they specifically had to deal with, deal with is trying to do a kind of municipalist experiment in an extremely centralized state as Britain is, um, and particularly as England is, given the other three component parts of the UK have kind of got away a little bit lately. Um, the, um, they had extremely uh, acute opposition from the British press, particularly the tabloids. Um, so particularly the Sun, News of the World, but also the kind of in-between things like the Daily Mail. Um, they had a furious campaign, which and the thing that they specifically focused on, which is interesting, is the exact thing for which they're now best remembered, which are the anti-racism campaigns and the gay rights campaigns and the feminist campaigns. Those three things actually fed into uh, the actually otherwise quite neoliberal uh, Labour Party that came back into national power nationally in 1997. They actually took that up from the GLC and then they brought it into power nationally. Again, this is why that, it's, their, it's their major legacy. They didn't criticize the socialist economics. They didn't even, they just ignored it by and large. It was just like, you know, we, the taxpayer is giving money to lesbian theater groups. The taxpayer is giving money to like, you know, um, there was a, I think it was, this was the birthplace of the myth that like children weren't being allowed to sing Bar Bar Black Sheep in schools. Completely untrue, obviously. Um, you know, all of these sorts of things, you know, that there, there was, um, the, the homophobic aspect of the campaign in particular was gigantic. Um, and, you know, the, the, the career of Peter Tatchell actually begins here with him um, being shafted by both the Tories and Labour and the um, and the press when he stood as a, a Labour candidate in 1982 for what had been a safe in a London seat, which he lost. Um, they were also opposed very much from within the Labour Party itself to a degree which is you know, unsurprising to anyone that's watched Labour Party politics in the last few years. Um, Labour right are brutal and they fought it very, very hard. Um, and particularly they showed very little solidarity with the attacks that were being made on this kind of, uh, on these sort of very sort of bigoted lines. Um, in some cases, they would actually publicly sympathize with those criticisms. Um, they did oppose the abolition of the Great London Council, but they didn't actually put its, uh, its reconstitution back in the Labour Manifesto until 1997. 
um, I think largely because they imagined that something like that would be taken over by the hard left again. Um, so their way of dealing with that, what I think was by and large, the sort of stuff I've, been, I've, I've already been talking about, of the, the festivals, the advertising campaigns, the records, um, exhibitions, you know, kind of fun fairs even, you know, these sorts of things were where they, they knew that they had this enormous budget, they owned County Hall, they would have many, many festivals in County Hall itself, they owned County Hall, they owned London's parks, they owned the, uh, the South Bank of the Thames, um, you know, several of the art galleries around there and so forth, and so they could use that, and that's what they did, um, and again they did it with some success, the actual um, you know, before the GLC was abolished, opinion polls show that they would have won any actual election in a landslide. So, so it worked up to up to a point, but it alienated nearly as many people as it as 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 it excited, um, particularly in certain suburban areas of London. The London borough of Bromley, in particular, fought it brutally hard. Um, they were obsessed with the fact that because they weren't on the tube network. Um, that any cut to tube fares was like a, a, a way, was like a pressing Bromley, because Bromley taxpayers had to then pay to subsidise the tube fares of people in the rest of the city. Um, so they actually took the the tube fare reductions to court and won, because um, obviously the courts were also deeply, deeply unsympathetic. So they had opposition from literally everywhere, and they would probably have overcome most of it if they hadn't been abolished, but they were abolished. But it seems like they had quite um they took on all of these battles quite head on and quite like they it doesn't seem like they were kind of um being holding back yeah say. i mean that, do, you, do you think the fact that they were abolished was a testament to how dangerous they were or or if they'd been a bit more cautious and strategic about what fights they took on, then it may be they wouldn't have been abolished. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I suppose that there's, there's two schools of thought from the left as, as to how they could have avoided that fate, and I don't think either really work. Um, one of them is that they should have stuck strictly to local politics. Um, that actually, that the thing that was pissing off the government was their very public sympathy with the ANC. Um, they erected the statue of Nelson Mandela next to the Royal Festival Hall, which is still there. Um, their very public sympathy with Irish uh, republicanism. They invited um, uh, Gerry Adams to County Hall at a point in which Gerry Adams wasn't allowed to appear on television. And um, you had to get a voice actor to actually dub Gerry Adams, which is a wonderful little fact I think everyone should know about. Um, and, you know, just the, the general and, you know, the, the very public solidarity with uh, Sandinistas and so on and so forth. They had this kind of international dimension, basically, which it's argued if they just kind of scaled it down and hadn't been so public and hadn't been so propagandistic, then they perhaps would have been left alone. And this is bollocks, largely because if they hadn't done all of those things, hadn't been so public and so propagandistic, they would not have got that, that, that wave of public, popular support that they got. Everyone knew what the GLC was by the end of it. And actually, but when they came to power in 1981, probably not that many people did know. Um, you know, it was, uh, and on that level, it was, you know, I, I think it's that the criticism is quite unfair. Um, the other point, which is sort of quite hard to explain because it involves quite a lot of knowledge about the other municipal experiments that were happening under Thatcherism, was about their relation to a kind of countrywide rebellion against a cap on the amount of money you could raise in local taxes, basically. 
the government introduced a tax that said you can only you can only take this amount from from taxpayers. And this affected about 50 local authorities across Britain, including some conservative ones in Portsmouth, Swindon, but the rest were all Labour. And they, um, some of them were basically run by the Trotskyist organisation Militant, um, such as Liverpool, most famously. Um, and some of them were kind of more trade union left, like Sheffield. Um, but they, they all had that kind of 68 background in the, in, in there. And they were all basically being, you know, kind of deliberately, you know, kind of uh, dragged into a confrontation by the government. And their tactic was to refuse to um, the tactic of Liverpool. Uh, 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 the tactic of Liverpool was to um, refuse to follow the law on this. Basically, was to just say we will not follow this policy. We will take. We, we will set whichever whatever rate we like, and you'll have to deal with it. And there was a kind of idea that if all local authorities that were involved in this had done that, they might have made the whole thing unworkable and the government would have then caved. And that the GLC, by the fact that they did set a legal rate, partly because they actually, unlike Liverpool, had a lot of money, but Liverpool didn't set a legal rate partly because people would have, you know, even in Liverpool were on the brink. You know, they, they really didn't, in many ways, they didn't have much of a choice. This wasn't the case in London. The GLC had shitloads of money. Um, and that's John McDonnell and Ken Livingston split over the specific thing right at the end of the GLC, with McDonnell arguing that they should go into battle with the rest of these councils, even though the GLC had no reason not to set a legal rate, and Livingston going like, look, you know, we'll, we'll get taken to court and dismissed, which is exactly what happened to, um, to Liverpool. Like the, the Liverpool councillors refused to set that rate, were all dismissed from office. Um, so if you broke the law, you were dismissed from office like they were in Liverpool. If you followed the law like you did in London, your council was just abolished anyway. Um, so I don't think there was anything anyone could have done. Um, sometimes, you know, there is moments in history where, you know, you do all the right things and still they do you in. I guess at least they they went all in for the time I, they were. And I really think that's the thing that, that, that if I wanted any anyone in London now to learn from it, it's that, it's just like, you know, let people know who the fuck you are, which is really, and what you're doing, tell them, <laughs> which I'm really bad at, which baffles me. No, one a way lot to, to A lot to think about, go, sorry, go ahead, Pierre. I was gonna say one way to look at it is, uh, it's just not all about surviving forever. Mm. None of these uh, regimes go, go on forever. Uh, even daily was done after 22 years in Chicago. Mm. Uh, and then they get memorialized by uh, fellow travelers on the press and <laughs> the academics, you know. Uh, I hate to tell you, uh, I looked up uh, Chicago mayors in uh, Wikipedia when I was doing this. And uh, I don't think there was one mention of Harold Washington. <laughs> Somehow or other, they have great capacity to forget. And I haven't seen a hell of a lot of mention until your book of uh, the Greater London Council either. And I was trying to do some work on it about three years ago and never went very far, but um, I should have found it. And uh, so it's an interesting problem, see, if you think that your role is to be some kind of beacon for history 
20 years down the road or 100 years down the road. I think the GLC did it. I think Harold Washington did it. But the irony is that they didn't do it politically. They did not survive. So I, I would, I would, I think, um, jump in again with this long view and say one of the things that's lacking is a sort of framework, right, in which municipalism is a sort of, um, you know, recognized political force for, you know, progress moving forward. That there's that that framework is is missing, right? Um, so it's not just left versus right. You know, you you remember Thatcher not just because you know she was right wing, but because she represented the state, right? And the the state, you know, uh, had the most power, always has the most powerful message, right? So, um, you know, my answer in terms of adversaries is, you know, I would I would say that it's not really left versus right. That it's um, parties on both the right and the left that are more focused on state power and that they view any sort of decentralization of power as a zero sum game, right? So that it's not just, you know, oh, you will share power nicely between the local and the regional and the national. It's a zero sum game in which, you know, the decentralization feels like a loss of power at the state level. So all of those parties that are really vying for power at the national level, you know, tend to view municipalist movements as a threat. Um, so I would say that that's a kind of, you know, long-term trend that, um, and, and it's only recently, I mean, I think even, you know, even the dominant position on the left was statist, right? You know, the Marxist tradition in general, right, is, is a more statist tradition. The goal is to, you know, conquer the state, even though you have all of these great examples of municipal socialism, but they, but they remain anecdotes, right? They remain uh, single anecdotes. And of course, that is one of the weaknesses of the municipalist legacy is that they are anecdotal case studies often, right? Of single, you know, place, single cities or single, you know, um, experiments. And they don't rise to the level of, you know, historically relevant to the big picture, right? Because they're just one case and, and one city. So I would, I would say that you know, one of the challenges uh, for municipalism is the kind of thing that Fearless Cities is trying to do is, is building those horizontal alliances, right, across. And so it's making it clear that this is more, you know, it's a broader kind of movement, right? It's not just a single case study of what happened when, you know, this particular individual, right, started building alliances. It makes it sound, again, very anecdotal when it happens in those cases. Um, and I would say the second challenge that is not always met is that sort of balance between social movements and government and working in the municipal government, right? Um, the, uh, somebody talked about that yesterday in terms of the future. This was the panel on the future of uh, municipalism in Spain, that um, there's always that kind of tension between social movements, which of course are ambitious, they wanna get everything done, and then people get into the government as has happened with En Comun, right, in Barcelona, and like, wait a minute, you know, the, 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 the constraints of now working in a bureaucracy are very different from what, you know, we can do things in a much more constrained way than what we thought we could do as social movement activists, and keeping that dialogue and that, you know, that pressure going is something that doesn't always happen. My example would be from the neighborhood association movements of the 1960s and 70s, Right, they were pressuring for all of these improvements in urban infrastructure. And once the 
new democratic governments were established, a lot of those social activists from the neighborhood associations became municipal employees, right? They joined the, you know, the planning department and they joined the infrastructure department, right? But, you know, something is lost that, you know, the social movement said, okay, well, we don't have to do anything anymore because, you know, our people are now in the government doing things, you know, but you, but you, of course, continue to need those social movements, right, to pressure and, and keep pushing um, because the very structure of government, even at the municipal level, is going to continue to kind of constrain, right, what can actually be done. Uh, anyone who is in the webinar can can ask questions either in the chat or through the Q&A tool. We've had one which is uh, asking about where people can find out more about Chicago. And I wanted to take advantage of that to say that we've opened uh, a platform on the Fearless Cities website, which is called network.fearlesscities.com. I think you can get to it from, from the main website, which is on the Desilim participation platform was well, using the disilim tool anyway the point is is that if you go in there and you go to this session or the the forum for this session i've posted um a list of uh both of uh, pierre and owen's books and also some other resor resources about the things that we've been talking about today so you can go into that and and check it out. And also anyone who wants to add, thank you, it's in the chat as well. Tony's given us the link. Anyone who wants to also suggest other reading materials or documentaries or, or have a debate about these things, um, that's, that's the place to go so that we can continue these um, conversations. I actually um, feel like the, the lesson of govern as if you were the GLC in 1986 <laughs> as a kind of conclusion to this is, is kind of a good one. And also, but do that, but then also leave a record of, of what you've done because that's like, like Pierre was saying, and there's, there's so little information. There's also another thing I've put on the post, which is the GLC story, which is a, an oral history project that was done a few years ago with interviews of, of people who were working at the GLC. Because so often in these cases, you find that either the people who were involved themselves have written a book or, or left some sort of record or no one else has, right? Um, which isn't the case with Thatcher or Reagan. Right? A lot of people have, have dedicated a lot of time and resources to, to keeping that, um, that history alive. So that's kind of... Um, that's kind of something I think that we've also got to, to think about, about what we're doing now, maybe be a bit bolder and also um, keep, keep a record of, of what we're doing, which is to be fair, a lot easier these days. Um, do, do any, do, do you guys want to ask each other any final questions or, or make any final, um, oh, hang on a second. Ah, yes, the Cornell Library Archive, that's also on the, um, someone's mentioned that in the chat. That's also on the, the post that I've done, which is um, an archive of progressive city policies. Um, any final thoughts? Well, I have um, to send you more stuff. Send me more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's, there's one thing I kind of would want to kind of hold on to about the GLC that I think is a is that they were very much responsive to a particular thing at a particular time. 
Um, and a lot of their ideas, particularly on kind of popular planning and so forth, kind of could very easily lose their meaning when kind of put into a later period. And you can see that very much when Ked Livingston came back to power later. The London that they were running in the first half of the 80s was a city in profound economic decline, where people were leaving in large numbers. The one that he took over again in 2000 was nearing a historic peak, was had an enormous property boom. And, and the policy toolkit, for want of a less wonkish word, that they developed in the 80s was no use for that. In many ways, actually, the 1930s policies would have been much more useful for doing something about it. And I think there's there's always a sense of like, you know, so therefore it's more of a kind of ethos and a kind of way of doing things, kind of being, you know, of, of being very public and being very, very egalitarian. And that, 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 was, that was kind of exciting about that and that you can still kind of tap into. The specifics of it on housing and planning in particular, I think are kind of less valuable. And I think that's often the thing. It's like, and sort of as well as being an anecdote, which I think is often definitely the kind of the, the, the drawback of this stuff, there's also a sense of them being a tale, right? And it is an exciting tale. I, I, I um, recently saw um, uh, 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 some sort of artist student project down the road in, at Goldsmith College who were like, you know, doing a kind of project on like, what if the GLC wasn't abolished? And they had this whole art project about what it would have looked like. And, you know, we would all gone off into space and it was very, very charming. And I think those kinds of myths, they have a certain use. I think they're not, they're not entirely a bad thing. They can, people, people remember them and they stick in their heads and people will then often want to avenge them. So I, I guess I would, you know, just finish with, um, maybe I'm, I'm sort of realizing the importance of the ideology of municipalism itself as a way of, you know, um, uh, as a way of, of, you know, keeping a record of what's happening, right? Rather than just pragmatic responses to particular situations, there's a whole kind of ideology of, you know, decentralized power and citizen participation that frames whatever the response is, you know, whether it's the 1980s or the 2000s, you're going to need a different toolkit, but there's that kind of framework that helps, you know, again, connect the dots and realize that, the, you know, that these, that, that the, the general set of principles can be adaptable, right, to different situations. You know, I say, recruit some librarians. This is a very interesting profession. And uh, we normally just don't contact, uh, contact with them uh, the way um, we might. So I, I'm, a, I'm a retired professor now, so I have much more to do with the library than I do with uh, my department. And the librarians are fantastic. They're very professional. They don't, they're not like my professor friends. <laughs> it's an amazing, uh, amazing thing. This is a resource that we don't use. So they're probably, one of the best libraries I ever saw was a municipal library in Savannah, Georgia. Why? Well, there was a city manager there who somehow believed that it was one of his functions to create this great record of the city. Well, they had a big history anyway, and he had a lovely library. This sort of thing has to get, um, has to get into our consciousness, I think.
I love that as a way to finish. I'm going to put that as our homework for the global municipalist movement is create a global municipalist library of all the historical experiences of, of municipalism so that we can accumulate all the knowledge there and be able to refer back to it. So I'll just be uh, hunting for the, for the librarians to, to do that. Thank you so much for, for joining us for this conversation. We've only just touched, I feel like we've only just scraped the surface of, of, uh, of the subject, but um, I'm sure we'll be able to uh, talk again in the future in other contexts and other settings about this. And I'm sure the people who are watching have been inspired to, to look further into London and Spain and Chicago and maybe discover other experiences too. So um, thank you so much. It's been, it's been wonderful. And um, we'll leave it here. Thank you, everybody. Nice <laughs> to meet you all. Thank you. <laughs> Igualmente. <laughs>